This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. You are listening to On the Daily, the RotoViz Daily Fantasy Sports Podcast, powered by RotoViz Radio. Hey everyone, I'm Matt Friedman, Matt of the Oracle of the Action Network and RotoViz. Welcome to the February 15th, 2019 NASCAR edition of On the Daily. I'm joined by Dr. Nick Giffen, a uh, PhD in mathematics, a three time qualifier for the DraftKings NASCAR made event, and of course, one of the best NASCAR DFS players in the world. You can follow him on Twitter at RotoDuck. Nick. How is it going? Oh, man, it is going great. Daytona 500, start of the NASCAR season. Uh, we've already had three races take place in Daytona Speed Weeks. It's it's an exciting time of year for NASCAR fans, of course, and all racing fans in general. Uh, obviously, uh, Indy, IndyCar and Formula One are going to kick off in the coming weeks as well. So if you're a racing fan, it's just a great time of year. And it's really just kind of a great time of year as well. We're getting down to the wire in college basketball then all the uh, you know the summer or you know spring and summer sports start heating up, so uh, it'll be it'll be fun. It's a good time of year. You know, uh, you mentioned that we've already had three races. Of course, we had the two duels races on Thursday night. I kind of wish that every. I mean, I, I guess it's not very practical to do this, but I wish like every race had preceding rate preceding qualifying races that would determine the order for the race. Like I think that would be fun because it was actually fun to uh, to bet on the the duels races yeah absolutely and uh you know i think it is something that nascar may eventually consider down the road to kind of drum up some excitement and uh have these little midweek showdowns things like that but obviously right now that's not the case but i, I think it would actually be good for dfs as well not just for the qualifying races themselves but to shake things up for you know for the actual main slate for the for the the main race on the weekend so um you know obviously some good drivers can end up near the back and they end up chalky. But what if, uh, you know, what if the chalk pops and, 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 you know, hits the wall and a tire pops for a chalky driver, then, you know, that's how, that's really the, the crazy part of, you know, chalk. But obviously um, a lot of these other races aren't as, as random necessarily as Daytona and Talladega have been in the past, but with the new rules, maybe that's something we start doing now because uh, it's going to be a lot more random, I think this year than in, in, in years past. So, Maybe NASCAR will eventually go to something like this. I know they've long talked about trying to have, you know, a midweek showdown, even if it's, uh, you know, a smaller race. But maybe they should just go to qualifying races. That'd be kind of cool. Yeah. Okay. So before the qualifying races, of course, last Sunday we had the clash. Uh, well, we'll talk about qualifying races. Kevin Harvick won the first race. Joey Logano won the second race. Uh, the two drivers that missed out on qualifying were Ryan Truex and uh, Joey Gase. And then the clash took, uh, took place on Sunday. 
Jimmy Johnson won a rain-shortened race after he spun uh, then-leader Paul Menard. Uh, I would like to get your thoughts on that later. But uh, <laughs> that, that turned into a 17-car accident uh, just before the rain came in. So, uh, Nick, how was your clash, uh, your clash lineups? How did all that go? Uh, and uh, talk to me about the uh, the accident of Johnson. I'm... I saw the footage. It looked like he bumped into Menard, but I'd like to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we'll also have to talk about just all of Speed Weeks in general because there's a lot of things to learn from it. But first of all, my Clash lineups, uh, I lost like 500 bucks, which on 2200 or $2,300 in entries is not too bad. Um, but uh, I, I really feel like I was so close to having a big day. The big issue was of the three cars that took no damage in that crash, one of them was Joey Logano. And he was the driver I may have been the most underweight on. He was 40% owned, and I had about 15% Joey Logano. So, you know, I was like negative 25% on him. And I still think it was the right call. I mean, my reasoning behind it, be, being underweight on Logano, basically exactly played out in that race the way I wanted. He just didn't get caught up in the wreck, and <laughs> right. he's one of the three cars that got right. through. So that kind of hurt me. But if you look at the rest of the top six or eight or whatever, it was all drivers I was either equal to or overweight on. Just got really unlucky with the uh, Logano getting through, even though my reasoning was all sound. So I feel like I had a good clash, even though you know that's the way it goes. You lose small, but uh, you know we look at my clash record in the past. Uh, the two slates I've played for it, I've won big, and, and one time I've lost small. All right. Um... Anything else from Daytona Speed Weeks? Uh, a lot to take away, I think, from the two duels races. Uh, what do you think that we can take from that and apply to the Daytona 500? Yeah, well, Jimmy Johnson needs to stop wrecking people. <laughs> I mean, that's the first. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but I actually do want to talk about that wreck because I think everybody knows I'm a pretty big Paul Menard fan. And uh, Menard dominated that that race. And, and this that's another theme that we're going to talk about is, is dominating these races at Speed Weeks. But... Um, Jimmy Johnson tried to make a move. I, I have no problem with him trying to make a move on Paul Menard. He was trying to side draft him, and I think he may—I don't know if he misjudged it, but I think he—I think the side draft may have sucked him into Paul Menard's uh, right or sorry left rear, which of course caused Menard to spin. Johnson claims Menard came down on him, but you look at the you know the in-car footage from Kurt Busch, and it's very clear Johnson moves up into Menard. Uh, I think he just didn't realize how much the side draft was going to suck him into Menard's right rear, or sorry, left rear there, and uh, triggered a 17-car wreck. You know, only three cars went through unscathed, and then uh, like maybe five other cars got through with damage that kept going around. But uh, yeah, not good for Paul Menard. He finished uh, 13th. So even though he led all but a small handful of laps. Uh, you know, he was in the winning lineup until Jimmy Johnson wrecked him, and then he finished 13th, and that negative 12 place differential and losing those 12 finishing position points, so 24 points lost right there, uh, made it so that he wasn't in the winning lineup. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like I had a pretty good, pretty solid clash other than not having enough Paul Menard. Um, that was my other big mistake was not having enough Paul Menard, and I think that's another lesson we can take away from the Daytona Speed Weeks is it's been really easy for cars to dominate these races. Paul Menard dominated kevin harvick dominated his duel joey logano uh didn't dominate his duel but clint boyer dominated that duel and then finished second so clint boyer was obviously in the winning lineup there so there's really been a dominant car uh in all three of these races we go last year to the daytona 500 ryan blaney dominated led like 57 percent of the laps uh and 
what what is the other common theme here? All four of those dominators that we just talked about, the three earlier this week and then Blaney last year, were all forwards. We look at Talladega last race last year, the Stewart Haas cars dominated. So I, I think we're going to see probably uh, a, a very good chance of, uh, of somebody dominating this race, and it will probably be a Ford. So that's going to be something I'm going to keep in mind. Um, normally we don't talk very strongly about dominators. We know they can happen at Daytona. But I think there's probably a higher percentage chance of a dominator than if we just look at the past average from like 20, 2005 to 2018 or even 2013 to 2018. Uh, that would be my main takeaway. And then also this side draft, it's very interesting. Um, Jimmy Johnson also wrecked Kyle Busch in the, the duel. So both of Jimmy Johnson's races, he's gotten into somebody's left rear and spun them out. Uh, I think he apologized to Kyle Busch on that one. Kyle Busch wasn't having any of it, though. He wasn't happy. But uh you know, I definitely think that side draft um, might might be able to, you know, if you don't get far enough alongside the driver to side draft them, if you're only kind of on their very rear quarter panel, um, you, you might get sucked into them. So that's something to keep an eye on for, for this weekend as well. We could definitely see a big one if uh, something like that happens come, you know, the last 20 laps, the heat of the race and uh, drivers trying to get crazy. So uh, I think we'll see a lot of single file at some point in the Daytona 500, which we saw in every single race so far speed weeks. I think we'll see a possible large, greater chance of a dominator. But I also still think there's a, a pretty solid probability of a big one. OK, um, question. Why do you think that uh, this year, relative to some of the years past, we have seen greater uh, kind of percentage wise domination at a restrictor plate race. Yeah, I mean, I think it just has to do with the, the you know, in 2013, they, they got the Gen 6 car and then they started trimming some downforce off it and then making some other minor rule changes to it. And I think the rules package they kind of settled on in 2016 uh, kind of led to more dominance recently, just depending on which manufacturer hits it, uh, hits the package correctly. So you, in 2016, it was the Joe Gibbs racing cars just basically led the whole race, whether it was Matt Kenseth or Denny Hamlin. Uh, they basically all four. And then if you threw in tricks there with, with the furniture row car, all five of them were like one through five for most of the race. And then 2018, we saw that with, uh, Blaney just dominating the race and having his teammates on his tail, even in the qualifying race, or, uh, in the duel that Blaney won, it was Keselowski, Logano and Blaney dominating that whole race last year. So it's just the rules package we've kind of been under since 2016. And it's really manifested itself, especially in the past two years of the Fords, just absolutely crushing um and and so i think it's just kind of the new form of restrictor plate racing and thankfully hopefully it's going to be the you know with the restrictor plates no longer going to be a thing uh we may not see as much of this now of course at the las vegas test under the new tapered spacer package it was hard to pass the leader as well so uh while there's a lot of passing in the field with a tapered spacer and usually in restrictor plate races as well it's probably still going to be pretty hard to pass the leader and then also it's just the theory of the race. There's no point in going crazy 50 laps into a 200 lap race where you can make up a lot of positions really quickly, especially if there's a late restart. So um, it just it, it pays to ride around and, and just you know keep calm and make positions where you can, but but not do anything crazy until the last you know 20 laps or so. Okay, so the Daytona 500 is on Sunday. Uh, it is a 40 car field. It is now set uh, because of the dual races. Uh, based on the starting positions for all the drivers, is there anything that immediately jumps out to you? Yeah, definitely. Um, obviously, Brad Keselowski in his dual race had uh, some penalties 
Those penalties put him several laps down. He finished 20th in his duel. So he will start 35th for the Daytona 500. Uh, obviously, he's going to be very heavily owned. So um, one of the things that will jump out will be, you know, that I'll talk about in the driver-by-driver breakdown article will be how do we approach Brad Keselowski, how do we approach Kyle Busch, who also had problems in duel one and will start 31st. Uh, and then also, very cool to see Matt Benedetto finish fourth in his duel, but that means he'll start ninth. So um, probably a pretty easy fade candidate there in Matt Benedetto. So just a couple of interesting things there. Um, other than that, you know, it really does look like your typical Daytona 500. You've got some big names in the back. Um, you've got uh, some potential dominators up front, and then the middle of the field, you kind of need to maybe get a little bit lucky or, or fade the right spots. And uh it really does, you know, kind of stand out as your typical Daytona 500 lineup. But uh, um, I think Brad Keselowski starting 35th is going to be the the big elephant in the room. How do you approach that? Okay, you just released your strategy article at Rotoviz. Uh, you analyzed the optimal DraftKings lineups since 2005. Uh, that's not right. 2015, right? Since since 2005, yeah. Uh, got it, got it, got it. Okay, yeah. That, that does make sense. You're retroactively got it. Okay. Uh, what does it take for a driver to get into that optimal lineup? Yeah. So, um, yeah, because we're, we're retroactively applying the points from 2014 yeah. to – yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you can still figure out who the top six drivers in scoring were, and I can guarantee you none of those would be over a hypothetical $50,000 salary cap because of all the, the smaller right. name drivers that, that end up in the winning lineup. So. Yeah. Um, I, I pretty much just say whatever the top six scores are is the optimal lineup. And uh, so looking back, there has never been a driver that has scored fewer than 50 DraftKings points that didn't end up in the winning lineup. Dale Earnhardt Jr. did score 50 DraftKings points one time and uh, ended up as the sixth highest DraftKings scorer uh, in his in his race there. Uh, in that particular Daytona 500 race there, I think that was like 2015 uh, or something like that. But uh he started third and finished third and led some laps, so uh, that got him 50 DraftKings points. It was just a weird year um, where, uh, if you look at if you look at the drivers that end up in the winning lineup, um, it was three drivers all the way in the back and then three drivers in the top 10. So you know maybe the whole middle of the field just wrecked out or something. But uh, that that's a pretty unique situation. So it takes a minimum of 50 DraftKings points, but really what it takes is if you score at least 61 DraftKings points, you're guaranteed to be in the winning lineup based off of the 14 years of data we have, loop data we have. Uh, additionally, um, you know, if you take that 50 to 61 range and you go about halfway in there, 55 and a half points, it takes about 55 and a half points to be more likely than not in the winning DraftKings lineup. So you're looking for a driver to probably score at least 55 and a half, you know, let's round it to 56 DraftKings points. Uh, to be in the winning lineup. So that's what it's going to take. And that's why I'm talking about, uh, you know, Matt Benedetto here starting in ninth. What will it take for him to get 56 DraftKings points? Well, if he wins the race, that'll be 46. Uh, plus eight place differential will be 54. And then he would have to lead some laps to get up to 56 or have some fastest laps. So essentially, if Benedetto doesn't win the race, he's probably not going to be in the winning lineup. Uh, and we probably don't think Matt Benedetto, even though you know he's a very good play at racer, he's probably not going to win the Daytona 500. So you know you can pretty much write off Matt Benedetto for the Daytona 500, things like that. So that's what we want to be looking for when we construct our lineups. Which drivers just don't have the ability to get to like at least 50 points, especially 56 or 61 points. 
Okay, so uh, kind of continuing in this vein of thinking about uh, the optimal exposure, the optimal... Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. If you're looking for amazing deals on name brand products, Grocery Outlet is your destination. This week, start your day off right with Maxwell House Ground Coffee. 29.5 ounce containers are just $3.99. That's a wow savings of up to 60% versus traditional grocery stores. Also, get a great bargain on contented hen organic medium free range eggs. 18 count packages are just $2.99. That's a wow savings of up to 50%. Offers good through September 3rd. Grocery Outlet Bargain Market. Uh, ownership percentage you should have for particular drivers. Uh, in the strategy article, you released Game Theory Optimal Driver Exposure Percentages based off of starting position. Uh, can you talk a bit about the process behind that and how people can use that information in their contest this week? Absolutely. So um, we can just, again, look at all the data since 2005, figure out which drivers were in the optimal lineup or um, if you take like all combinations of drivers, what was the optimal lineup? What was the lineups that would have placed you second, third, fourth, et cetera, uh, all the way to like the top 20% of lineups because we pay out 20% of the field in DraftKings. Uh, and using that information, we can then plot, a, you can essentially take a count for each uh, finishing position range, uh, payout range. You can get a count of the number of times each finishing or starting position, I should say, uh, ended up in that that, that particular uh, payout bracket, and then after some math, uh, which is just essentially a multi-regression, um, you can you can come up. So so right, like let's say we plotted uh, driver rating versus finishing position, you'd see a, li- a, a linear trend, but it wouldn't be perfectly linear or something like that. You'd have some, kind of the same thing here. You'd have a non-linear trend that you need to interpolate a a best fit curve through. So that's essentially what I'm doing, and then I'm applying that best fit curve for each payout. Uh, to, um, you know, kind of optimally profit for the weekend based off the payout structure for the big DraftKings GPP. So this is based off the $750,000 DraftKings GPP. Um, and so you take all that data since 20, 2005 and, and you get a count and a rate, a hit rate, all these things for each of the payout structures based off starting position, and then you can come up with optimal. Now, I had to tweak it a little bit because now we have a 40-car field since 2016 to present, but prior to 2016, we had a 43-car field. So I basically took uh, – I, I said 43rd is the equivalent of 40th, and then everything else was like a percentage of the finish. So first place finish uh, or, or the top-scoring driver um, got a 100% finish, and the last-place driver in DraftKings points – not in finishing position, but a DraftKings points got a zero percentage finish. So you can scale one to 43 down to one to 40. And then I weighted it based off of the number of 43 car fields versus the number of 40 car fields. All that said, a lot of math, you come up with optimal ownership percentages for starting position based off of the past, you know, 14 years of data. So uh, that will hold true as long as the underlying assumptions uh, for, for 2019 hold true as well. Now, obviously, I think we can make some assumption adjustments. There may be a little bit more dominance. Uh, there may be a little more single file. But overall, we're probably pretty close to the GTO ownership percentages. We can just make some tweaks uh, to those GTO ownership percentages based off of our current knowledge. Okay. So uh, in general, the GTO ownership percentages are very useful 
for mass multi-entering. Uh, you know, you're you're putting 150 lineups into a large field GPP, but how can you use those uh, for like single entry or three max contests? Yeah, what I think you want to do is you want to look at like ranges. So if you if you look at my article, um, I talk about a range of drivers. Let's say the top five drivers, um, they average about there's a, on average about 0.7 drivers that uh, sorry 0.43 drivers in the top five that end up in the winning lineup per race. So if you're doing three entries, um, then you know you want about 50% exposure. Uh, to, to a driver in the top, to all of the drivers in the top five. So what is 50% exposure? Well, that means one out of your three lineups would be uh, with a single driver in the top five, starting in the top five might be good. That's 33% or two, that would be 67%. But you probably don't want more than two out of, if you're doing a three max, you probably don't want more than one or two drivers uh, starting inside the top five of all of your lineups combined. So you can kind of use it, uh, use the ranges there. So uh, another one that we look at would be, you know, the drivers starting 30th and worse. Uh, in Historically, we've averaged about 3.7, the GTO um, if you use one of the weighted average, I think gives about 3.6 drivers per lineup. So if you're constructing, again, a single lineup, you'll probably want three or four optimally uh, drivers starting you know, 30th or worse, something like that. And so those are the, that's how you can use those ranges to, uh, you know, GTO ranges to inform your lineup making decisions. So it doesn't have to be position by position specific, but at least you can get some idea on ranges, you know, 30th or worse, 21st to 29th. Uh, starting 10th or better, these kinds of things to help you construct solid uh, single entry and three entry max lineups. Okay. In the article, uh, the strategy article, you talk about uh, dominator strategy, but I want to talk about some specific drivers. So the field, the set, which drivers do you think are possible dominators for the Daytona 500? Yeah. So looking at the field, We've got Kevin Harvick starting third and Joey Logano starting fourth. Ricky Stenhouse Jr. starting fifth. Paul Menard starting seventh. I, I think it's probably among those drivers. Um, it could be Clint Boyer as well, who dominated his duel. But I still think less uh, of Clint Boyer as a plate racer relative, especially to Stenhouse, Logano, and Harvick. So early on, it'll probably be one of those three drivers. And then uh, you know maybe mid-race or if the first pit stop sequence shakes out or whatever – uh, it could be one of Menard, Boyer, Almarola, maybe maybe a Toyota does for a little bit, like a Denny Hamlin or a Martin Truex Jr. Uh, but that's and then finally Ryan Blaney in 14th. That's probably like my full dominator pool right there. I uh, would be those those drivers that I just mentioned. So it's most of the front of the field um, because you know any it's a plate race. Any one of these drivers could emerge, but I don't think it'll be first or second William Byron or Alex Bowman in the Chevys. Uh, I don't think it'll be Matt Benedetto, of course. I don't think it'll be Kurt Busch or Bubba Wallace. So out of the top 14, those are the ones I'm eliminating. Then I also don't think it'll be Brad Keselowski way back there in 35th. He's got to work his way through the field. Yes, they could play some strategy, but even if they play some strategy, uh, it'll it'll probably be like, oh, well, he pitted early with the other four drivers. You know, He made his way to mid-pack and pitted with the other four drivers, gained a few spots in the pits, and now he comes out in eighth or something in that lead pack. Uh, then he would have to work his way forward. So I don't think Brad Kozlowski would be a dominator candidate, but obviously starting in 35th, he's a massive place differential candidate anyway. So my dominator pool is uh, the top 14 minus, you know, uh, like four or five, maybe six drivers in that top 14. So most of the top 14 would be my dominator pool, but not not all of it. Okay. Uh, how many dominators 
do you typically roster per lineup for a plate race? And then if there's any difference between a plate race and uh, Daytona 500 in particular? Yeah, so historically, eight of the 14 races we have data for, eight of the 14 Daytona 500s, has had a dominator that uh, has led at least 80 laps or at least 40% of the race, um, which is significant. I mean, that's 20 DraftKings points. However, of those eight, four of them wrecked out and finished, you know, 34th or worse and, and lost all their dominator points, all their finishing position points and did not end up in the winning lineup. The other four did. So four out of 14 doesn't sound like a great ratio. But, uh, you know, the chances of a dominator were eight out of 14. So let's say that's, you know, that's about 57 percent. And let's say there's a much better chance this year. I think there's probably about a 70, 75 percent probability of a dominator this year. Um, I, you know, I would just take that 57 percent and bump it up a chunk. Now, it's going to be harder probably with a 40 car field to dominate and all the things that go on in the Daytona 500 than in these 20 car fields where, you know, half the field does has no chance of dominating anyway. Uh, there's a lot more potential dominators in a 40-car field than in a 20-car field. So um, I think it's probably around, let's say, 67, so a third to or two-thirds to three-quarters of, of, of a chance of a dominator. That said, about 35, you know, 30, 35 percent DNF rate. So not all, you know, all. Or if you're playing 10 lineups and you want to say, let's say, 70 percent of them, or 70 percent of of races will have a dominator. Uh, if this race was run 100 times, you know, then that's nice, but you still won't want to play 7 out of 10 or 70 out of 100 lineups with a dominator because some of those dominators will DNF. So I think when you multiply the, the DNF or the incident rate percentage, uh, you get around 40 to 50% of your lineups should probably have a dominator. Okay. Uh, generally, for Daytona 500 and plate races, people have this strategy of just trying to jam in as many drivers as possible who are starting near uh, the rear of the field so they can get place differential points. Uh, but your strategy article shows that um, there's, you know, that's not exactly what you should be doing or there's more to it than that. Can you talk about um, the building blocks of a solid Daytona 500 lineup, kind of regardless of whether it is mass multi-entry or single entry? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, you mentioned, obviously, and, and we've talked about a lot in the past, that the jam it in in the back strategy works great uh, for, for drivers starting 30th or worse. Uh, if we look, you know, at the 2017 optimal lineup, five of the six drivers started 30th or worse, and the next started 26th. Uh, and there's been a few other lineups like that. 2011, all the drivers started 30th or worse except one, and he started 22nd. Similar in 20, 2009 and 2007. That's only four out of the 14 years. Um, there is... There's been, like we said, dominators that have ended up in winning winning lineup. There have been races where multiple drivers in the top 10, or even uh, more than more than two drivers in the top 20, have uh, ended up in the the optimal lineup. So uh, the way I really want to approach roster construction is make sure I have one dominator in a portion of my lineups. You can even have two dominators in a single lineup, hoping that one dominator hits and the other guy gets a really strong finish. Um, so that's certainly a possible strategy because you can have two drivers inside the top 10 or 15. You know, I'm really looking at those top 14. So let's say two drivers inside the top 14. Absolutely, that's a possible strategy you can use as two drivers in the top 14. Um, then it gets really interesting. You, you know, we, we mentioned drivers starting the back. It's totally fine to play five drivers starting 30th or worse. I probably wouldn't play six. Uh, we've never seen that happen ever. And uh, we've got some pretty bad drivers starting in the 30s this year. Um, not all, but but definitely plenty of pretty bad drivers. So, 
you know, I think the, the building blocks of a good Daytona 500 lineup are try to grab one or two potential dominators in that top 14, try to grab a lot of place differential, minimum of two, maximum of five, I would say, drivers starting 30th or worse, and then fill your lineup out with other drivers, just really trying to, um, if you're multi-entering, gauge ownership percentages. If you're single entering or three max, just you know, pick your favorite ones. It's such a random race. Just pick pick whichever ones interest you. Um, that said, most of these lineups have a very, uh, I guess, um, bimodal distribution uh, where it's either drivers in the front and drivers in the back, uh, and the middle of the field is pretty empty. So that 16 to 25 range, pretty empty. Now, it doesn't mean it can't happen where a driver starting 16th through 25th ends up in the winning lineup, but that's typically uh, a barren spot in winning lineups. So um, skew heavily towards the back. Don't be afraid to pick some potential strong guys starting 14th or better this year. And that mid-pack range, use sparingly. And that will be uh, good building blocks for a Daytona 500 lineup. Uh, the Clash and the Duels races, they're obviously their own kind of separate individual thing. But um, they are recent races, and they are taking place at Daytona 500, and they are restrictor plate races. So potentially they can provide some insight into uh, how people will have ownership exposure to some of the drivers. Um Anything that you think we can glean from those three races? Yeah, um, so it's it's been a pretty pretty interesting set of three races. If we look at the Clash, for example, um, Keselowski was 33% owned. He started in third there, um, and then Joey Logano was 40% owned. He started seventh there. I, definitely higher than I would have had on both drivers, especially we talked about Logano. But Keselowski, I was thinking more like. 25% would be optimal. Um, so these guys just go over-owned. Keselowski, Logano, even Harvick, uh, who, who you know started up there, went 33.9%. And Kyle Busch went 25% despite starting second and me thinking he had probably little to no chance to be in the winning lineup. So the big names are going over-owned, um, the very, very big names. We look at, uh, you know, at the dual races. Um, where is it? Uh, dual 1 flipping through here, Keselowski was 58.5% owned, and he started up near the front there. <laughs> despite being 58.5%, or despite starting up the front, he was 58.5%. Joey Logano was 51.6% starting up near the front, and then also Kyle Larson started way in the back with 74.2%. So, you know, these big names are just drawing a crap ton of ownership. Uh, and, uh, you know, even Kyle Busch in his, his dual race there, 40% owned despite... You know, starting in the top seven, and I really didn't like Kyle Busch in that race either. So uh, the big names will draw ownership percentage even if they start further forward, especially if they start further back. Uh, I think we're going to see Brad Keselowski's ownership explode. Kyle Busch will be very highly owned. Um, so, you know, I think that's that's something to draw. And then the other thing is there are certain drivers that I think uh, will go very under-owned. Look at Paul Menard. He was 4.2% in the clash, uh, which – you know, it's very hard to, to end up in the winning lineup in the clash. Uh, but then even if you look at uh, his his dual race there, I think he was only in the mid-20s in terms of ownership, despite starting, uh, you know, I think it was sixth or something like that, whereas other drivers are on 40 or 50 percent, even starting in the similar range. And, he, you know, Paul Menard finished, I think it was second in his duel, uh, sorry, third in his duel. He was, he was second for a good chunk of the race. And uh, almost, you know, won the, the, the clash there and dominated it. So 
lesser known drivers, even like Paul Menard, are, are, are drivers that'll go under owned. So um, it's it's the same thing we've seen every year. You know, definitely the ownership percentages are getting sharper, but there are still some very big edges in uh, ownership percentages. You know, I think Brad Kozlowski is going to be through the roof. Kyle Busch will probably be too highly owned. Um, you know, I don't think it'll be through the roof like Kozlowski, but uh, he'll still be too highly owned in my opinion. So uh, then there will be guys who are, are unknowns, like like look at Tyler Reddick. Um, I think in in his duel, he was somewhere around single digits or maybe top t- or 10% ownership max. So, uh, yeah, I have number eight and a half percent on Reddick there. So somebody like that starting way in the back is probably going to go under owned, even though he is starting way in the back. He'll probably go under owned for how far back he's starting. Um, so, you know, I think uh, I think just based off of the three races we've seen, there's going to be very heavy ownership on on the Fords. And, you know, probably only one of them can dominate this race. So if you just as a collective group uh, have less for dominating exposure uh you know so let's say if you sum up blaney plus almarola menard boyer stenhouse logano and harvick all those drivers starting far forward you're probably going to get i would guess maybe 200 percent ownership combined between them when we really should be uh, just throwing a number out there maybe between 70 and 100 percent combined ownership uh you know if you think 600 percent ownership total for for six drivers in a lineup uh, you probably can get a lot of leverage just by not picking so many Fords starting near the front. If you're looking for amazing deals on name brand products, Grocery Outlet is your destination. This week, start your day off right with Maxwell House Ground Coffee. 29.5 ounce containers are just $3.99. That's a wow savings of up to 60% versus traditional grocery stores. Also, get a great bargain on contented hen organic medium free range eggs. 18 count packages are just $2.99. That's a wow savings of up to 50%. Offers good through September 3rd. Grocery Outlet Bargain Market. Grocery Outlet Bargain Market is your headquarters for huge Labor Day savings. This week, stock up on Frito-Lay party-sized chips. 10.5 to 20-ounce assorted varieties are buy two, get one free. That's a wow savings of up to 50% versus traditional grocery stores. Limit three free. Also, get the grill fired up with Nathan's Famous Beef Franks. 10 to 12-ounce assorted varieties are just $2.99. That's a wow savings of up to 57%. Offers good through September 3rd. Grocery Outlet Bargain Market. Okay. Uh, based off of those trends, how do you think you're going to adjust your strategy for the race as a whole or for particular drivers uh, in general? Yeah, I think um, I have no problem saying this, even though we're going to do the driver by driver breakdown article later. But I'm definitely going to be underweight on on Keselowski and Kyle Busch. There's a, that's a no brainer for me. Um, the question is how much I actually really do like Keselowski. Uh, but I think Kyle Busch has just been absolutely terrible this whole speed weeks. Um, he's just struggled to get anything going. And uh, I think he's going to go way overowned. So um, I'm going to go pretty heavily underweight on Kyle Busch. Those are really the big adjustments. And then, like I said, the Fords all starting up front. They're just going to have too much combined ownership. So I'll probably have exposure to each of them because it's you know, I'm going to mass enter. And there's a chance any one of these guys that I've talked about could lead the race. But I'm definitely not going to have the amount of exposure on these four drivers. And then finally, um, just based off of what we've seen, you know, I think those front two Chevys are, are going to be two drivers. I just a hundred percent fade. Okay. Uh, let's talk about cash game strategy. Uh, for the clash, it was simple. You just start the six drivers starting farthest back, uh, for the Daytona 500, uh, with 40 cars, some pretty terrible cars starting near the back. What is your approach for cash games? 
Yeah, you're definitely not playing Cody Ware in cash this weekend, uh, despite him starting in the back six. You're probably not playing BJ McLeod either. Uh, so, you know, the, really the goal here is pick the big names in the back, um, but don't go too far forward. Like Kyle Larson in 26, I'm probably not playing in cash, uh, even though he is Kyle Larson. You're probably playing Keselowski and, uh, you know, obviously and in, in Kyle Busch, and then you're picking some of these other names back here that you think have a chance to do things. I know Casey Mears, Ty Dillon's teammate. If, if Ty Dillon was starting 40th, would you play him? Absolutely. So I think you can play Casey Mears, uh, especially given Casey Mears has had some very good restrictor play races in his past. Um, you've got an RCR car starting back there. So, you know, there's lots of drivers to choose from in cash, but definitely pick the big names, the, the better equipment starting in the back. Okay. Um, let's kind of go rapid fire uh, with some other things. Your model, what are the factors that go into it and how accurate is it for this race? Yeah, so my statistical model uh, for Daytona 500 itself, um, we've been making a lot of improvements in the offseason on uh, trying to figure things out, and I tried some different things. And uh, fortunately, we were able to hit on something uh, this weekend that gave us a cross-validated R-squared of 0.22, which is higher than we've ever had. Last year, I think it was around 0.14. Um, so 0.22, so that's pretty solid. And, uh, yeah, so the factors that go into it are actually 10-lap average practice times, or if there is no 10-lap average, then uh, the combined practice average. So, again, that's the fastest single-lap speed for each driver and then you for each practice session, and then you average those together. So if, you know, Keselowski has five practice sessions, you average those five practice sessions together, uh, his fastest lap, and that'll give you his combined practice average so without 10 lap data we do the the average speed uh there's the last 15 races of finishing position go into it and then also the type laps led so restrictor plate laps led over the past eight restrictor plate races those three factors all combine to give us an r squared of about 0.22 what is the incident rate for the for the daytona 500 uh, the long-term incident rate is 32.5%. If we just take the Gen 6 era, it's 35%. Uh, but, you know, un- that, that's just the overall incident rate. So, you know, if you're if you're looking at uh, playing Brad Keselowski above 65%, you're doing it wrong because there's a 30 35% chance he's going to be caught up in an incident. Right. And just to, to clarify, follow up on that, um, for the most part, you found that skill – doesn't have any correlation with the incident rate. Is that correct? Like, yeah, it doesn't absolutely. matter if you're a good plate racer, you're basically still just as likely to have an incident as someone who is uh, not a good plate racer or someone who's in a backmarker car. Pretty much, unless you're just like a really, really backmarker, you know, Cody yeah. Ware, BJ McLeod. Uh, even then, that incident rate for the absolute worst drivers only spikes to around 60%. Um, but by and large, for the vast majority of this field, they all have an equal, you know, around 30, a little over 30% uh, expectation of an incident. Okay. Uh, how much salary can you leave on the table? I mean, I feel you can leave so much salary on the table, but how much do you think you can leave on the table? Yeah. Um, you know, there are still people, especially new to DFS sports, that will try to to fill up the salary cap um, and play too many drivers starting too far forward because they're big names. So that's why there's always such an edge early on in the season. Um, but, you know, for this race, you know, let's just let's throw out a hypothetical four drivers that could be in your lineup. Um, let's say, you, you know, we've got a lineup here with Tyler Reddick, um, 
Let's let's do Casey Mears and Tyler Reddick. They're starting 40th and 39th. Let's throw in Keselowski and then let's say Michael McDowell. Those four drivers right there. After that, you could add in any two drivers and still not get anywhere near the salary cap. So, uh, you know, you'd be at least $5,000 under the salary cap. So you can absolutely leave $10,000, $12,000 on the table. Um, you know, I think the the lowest I've ever made for a Daytona 500 lineup or any plate lineup in general, I think, is like $36,000. Uh, I think there was a year that a $38,100 lineup uh, won the, the Talladega slate. So, um, yeah, I think I wouldn't go less than like 36,000, but you can definitely leave four, eight, 10, 12,000 on the table. And, I, uh, as long as it fits good roster construction philosophy, um, then yeah, that, that lineup is, is, is totally fine. Okay. Are, uh, are there some drivers who are correlated with each other? Uh, I'm assuming like some of the fours or some drivers who are negative, negatively correlated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, you mentioned some of the Fords. Well, I actually think they could be kind of negatively correlated with each other in terms of dominator points. But maybe you pick Blaney in 14th and then Joey Logano to dominate and then Keselowski in 35th. That's absolutely a stack you could do is the Penske stack right there because Blaney can move forward and finish second, third or first and pick up, you know, at least 11 place differential plus, uh, uh, you know, let's say that's 41 finishing position. That's 52 and then he'll probably get some fastest laps and maybe a couple laps led. So he could get over that 55, 56 point threshold. Logano could if he dominated and won the race and then Keselowski coming from the back to finish in the top three or five. That's absolutely something that could happen that could be correlation there. So stacking teammates, absolutely something you can do. But there is negative correlation, at least let's say between like Harvick and Almirola. Um, they could They could certainly push each other and finish one and two but they definitely negatively correlate as far as dominator points. Now that doesn't mean they both can't end up in the winning lineup as we talked about, but they would both have to finish probably one and two, given that they're starting third and eighth. And uh, the third place driver would probably be the one that has to dominate in that scenario. So uh, very small chance of that happening. So doing something like rostering Almirol and Harvick together, even though they're teammates, maybe has a little more negative correlation. And then there's certainly drivers that are negatively correlated. Denny Hamlin, if he does somehow dominate, it's not going to be because of Ford's pushing him. So, uh, you know, if Denny Hamlin dominates, that's not going to be Logano or, or Blaney dominating. Uh, so those drivers are negatively correlated with each other, would be potential dominators from different manufacturers. All right. Who is your pick to win the 500? Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> I think my, my, you know, my heart wants to say Paul Menard, just given how good he has been this year. But, uh, I, I think my head is going to go, of course, with Brad Keselowski. He hasn't quite done it. Uh, he hasn't quite been up front, but I still think he's the best plate driver there is. Um, but, uh, you know, coming from the back, I think he's going to win. That doesn't mean I don't like being underweight on him in GPPs, but, uh, you know, the head would say, Brad Keselowski, he's the favorite. He hasn't won the Daytona 500 yet, so there's always that little added incentive. My heart says Paul Menard, so I'm going to go with Paul Menard. Okay. Uh, anything else in terms of content coming up uh, for this weekend that you want to make people aware of? Absolutely. So um, we have the driver-by-driver driver breakdown article I'm going to do tonight. So it'll probably be out overnight and then ready for you guys Saturday morning. So you'll have all of Saturday Sunday morning to uh, set your lineups with all the driver by driver information. 
then I'm also going to record Road of His Life, giving more detailed breakdown um, of the driver-by-driver breakdowns, kind of a verbal breakdown. So I can, it's a lot easier to talk about things than to just write about it, but it's also still good to kind of see the color coding and the writing and uh, the model and all that. So the model will be in there. Then we're going to update the apps. We're going to have ownership percentage projections. So we still got a lot coming out, even though it's you know already Friday evening when we're recording this. So um, lots of good stuff on the way. And then Saturday, uh, probably evening, I will record Road of His Live, where I will take all of your questions uh, for the Daytona 500. So we're going to have a Road of His Live that I'm recording tonight with a driver-by-driver breakdown. Then once you've read the article, driver-by-driver breakdown, et cetera, um, then you'll be able to ask me questions on Twitter using hashtag RV live. And I'll do another RV live show answering everybody's questions. Yeah. And then I also think maybe, uh, from the action network perspective, you might be able to squeeze out an article. I'm hoping, do you think that's possible? Uh, absolutely. There's going to be an action network article as well. So, uh, obviously not on the road of his side, but, but an action network article where I will talk about, uh, some of my favorite bets for the NASCAR season. So, Maybe not even for the Daytona 500, but more of a seasonal prop perspective or a driver to win the championship type perspective. So definitely a betting article as well over at the Action Network. And uh, yeah, that's going to be about it for the Daytona 500 coverage. Pretty excited. Uh, You know, you guys can... As soon as this pod drop, I mean, people can already start building lineups if they want it. Obviously, it's going to be a lot better when all the tools and the article and the information is out there, but... I'm going to be building lineups tonight. Um, once I finish recording Road of His Live, I'm going to build all of my lineups and be done with lineup building. So that'll be cool. All right. Uh, that is going to do it for this NASCAR edition of On the Daily. For Nick Giffen on Twitter at Rotodoc, I'm Matt Friedman, Matt at the Oracle. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for listening to On The Daily, the Road of His Daily fantasy sports podcast powered by Road of His Radio. And special thanks to Randy E. Aguabo for the introduction. Please review the podcast on iTunes under the established Road of His Radio feed. Contact us via email on the daily DFS at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at on the daily DFS. Love a good deal? Sail into the season at Banana Republic Factory's Mega Labor Day Sale. Entire store 50 to 70% off. Dresses from $19.99. Polos from $16.99. Find your nearest store or shop online only at Banana Republic Factory. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn and complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance, which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discount not available in all stages situations.